Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. I think the 1970s funk band War said it best, Why can't we be friends? 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 Unlike most of the music today, of all genres, that requires some sort of super-secret decoder ring to try to decipher what in the world they're singing about, War made it very clear what was on their collective mind when these lyrics were penned. Unfortunately, the answer to all four of War's questions is because we're sinful humans. And because of that, let's just say we're not always the most trusting of or neighborly to each other. On today's episode, we're going to come perilously close to flying the unfriendly skies, then technology will help nudge us to share and share alike, and finally, we just need to trust the experts, like they tell us to. So don't worry about fastening your seatbelt or stowing your tray table, go find your best extension cord, and clear your tiny mind of all your silly beliefs, because whether you like it or not, here we go. You know how there's that person that you just can't stand? You have your dealings with him or her, and you muscle through, but you try to avoid eye contact, you try to avoid talking to that person, you genuinely just don't like each other. Okay, yes, I know, love your neighbor, but I also know that we're all humans in a fallen world. We all have that person. Most of us have more than one, and all of us are that person to someone else. No, you're not special and unique. There's most definitely someone that feels that sense of panic rising inside when they're around you, thinking, I've got to get out of here. Now imagine you take a road trip with that person. Not terribly long. We'll say maybe six hours together. And say that you're driving with no GPS. You're the one doing the steering. The other person is in control of the map. So you must interact to get where you're going. Now imagine you're doing that at 30,000 feet in the air with a lot more gauges and systems to monitor with specific tasks delegated to each of you and a couple hundred people sitting behind you. Well, that's apparently what happened or almost happened just recently. Found on the blaze.com headline, Alaska Airlines flight delayed because two pilots just couldn't get along. This happened on July 18th on what was supposed to be a flight from Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C. to San Francisco. The article says that due to weather, the flight was delayed for one and a half hours, and as it was finally making its way to the runway, the plane turned around and started heading back to the gate. The pilot apparently got on the intercom at that point and said that his co-pilot and he had a, quote, failure to get along, and that in the interest of safety, he was heading back. When they stopped and the door opened, the pilot grabbed his bag and left. A video from a passenger shows him walking away. Of course, people were incredulous, and as we do these days, they took to Twitter because that'll show them. The tweets that the Blaze article highlighted are as follows. From Chris Schum, quote, at Alaska Air, first, 
And last, time flying with you, after an hour and a half delay, we now return to the terminal due to, quote, a failure of the captain and first officer to get along. All I can say is wow. Just wow. Hashtag AS1080, hashtag fail, hashtag flight delay. From Al Jackson, quote, at Tom Costello, NBC, this is a first for me. Alaska number 1080, from IAD to SFO, already delayed due to weather, comes back to gate. Pilot says he and his first officer can't get along, so in the interest of safety, and then leaves the plane. From Nika Counselor, quote, Hashtag Alaska 1080, just returned to gate, because the pilot and co-pilot couldn't get along. Seriously. Pilot just left plane fuming after returning to gate from the tarmac. This is absolute ridiculous. And, and yes, I read that correctly. The article said that the passengers were delayed for another hour, but ultimately reached their destination, and they were each given $175 for the inconvenience. They got to where they were going because Alaska Airlines actually bumped a pilot from another flight over to this one, which delayed the other flight, but they got nothing for that delay. The article wraps up with a tweet from a pilot and a statement from the airline that are exactly where I wanted to go with this review. Robert Stu Scott tweeted, quote, Hi guys, although very annoying and inconvenient, as a pilot myself, I think the way things ended up was much better for all you passengers. Because I sure as hell wouldn't have wanted to be on that flight knowing the guys up on the flight deck were quarreling. A recipe for disaster. And Alaska Airlines said, quote, While this situation was unfortunate, in the interest of safety, the pilots did the right thing. Both the captain and the first officer was evaluated by management, and it was determined they remained fit to fly. We apologized to our guests for the inconvenience this caused. So here's the deal. Although I get the inconvenience, and I've flown with various delays and annoyances, people are stupid. Um, okay, maybe not stupid. Maybe I'll just say they're ignorant on so many things. And if something inconveniences me in the slightest, then it's the worst day ever, and I'm the maddest I've ever been, and someone needs to pay, and I want my way, and I turn into Veruca Salt, and I want it my way, and I want it now. Now look, I'm not a frequent flyer, but I am an avid connoisseur of airplane disaster, crash, and so on documentaries. I've got a handful of channels I subscribe to on YouTube that just walk through in anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes what happened, what the result was, and then the most interesting part to me, why it happened. I think people that are going to fly should have to watch a selection of these investigations. Now, I realize that it may put some people off of flying watching a computer-animated airplane, you know, cartwheel through the air, but there are a massive number of things you can learn that would actually make you a less frightened, more aware, more informed passenger. Things like, you have never been in severe turbulence. You may have encountered pretty hefty bumps, but almost nobody has been in anything severe that can even come close to taxing the limits of the airplane. You can see the absolute skill of these pilots that, although accidents do happen, the knowledge, the training, the reflexes, the skill of most of these pilots out there is just unreal. You learn how robust and over-designed airplanes are. You learn that you can lose an engine and still be okay. You can lose both engines or all engines, and depending on the height and the speed, you can glide for a very long way. 
and you learn about something called crew resource management, or some people call it cockpit resource management, CRM. Now, really quickly, I found a website, psbr.law, that has air accident statistics for the last nearly 40 years on a global scale. In general, you can see the trend of crashes, fatal, serious, and minor injuries ticking down year over year. In 2018, the last full year of data for this site, there were 1,581 airplane crashes. But remember, this is all aircraft from little personal puddle jumpers to jumbo passenger jets, and this is all around the world. For scope, the Hartsfield-Jackson Airport is the busiest airport in the U.S. and the world. They see about 1,000 flights per day. So 1,581 crashes worldwide is statistically very close to 0%. And now, out of these crashes, there were 847 fatalities. According to another site, in 2018, there were 4.3 billion people that flew commercial airlines. This doesn't count the small personal craft. So you can see that if you fly, you have about a 0% chance you'll crash and a 0% chance you'll die. And if you're flying in the United States or other industrialized nations that percentage is even lower. According to the PSBR.law site, they claim that statistics show that up to 80% of accidents are attributed to human error. And from the many, many investigations I've watched, I'd say that's probably about right on. And out of those human error cases, many times it came down to CRM. So what exactly is CRM? Well, it has to do with who does what, who's in control of what functions, what happens if an upset occurs, what phases of the flight must be sterile, as in no conversation other than is needed to fly the plane, and one aspect of CRM that has caused anywhere from near misses to the largest disaster in history, which happened on the ground on the Spanish island of Tenerife, is the interaction between pilot and co-pilot and potentially others that are also on the flight crew. See, when the cockpit is a hostile work environment, communication will not take place as needed. Pretty much all airlines now have a policy that says that any member of the flight crew can speak up about anything they see that they deem to be unsafe. This is done better in the industrialized nations than the third world nations, but this is supposed to be across the world. Now, in the past, the captain was the captain, and that was it. The others were subordinate to the captain, and if that captain created a hostile work environment, well, a number of crashes have been documented as that environment being the cause of the crash, something like the co-pilot being too scared to speak up, or having been berated, too intimidated to speak up, and so on. What these pilots did was the right thing. Now, unfortunately, it did cause other headaches for these schedulers. It caused headaches for the passengers. But what we saw was the providence of God on these passengers. One or both of the pilots may need to deal with anger issues or whatever, and that's fine. It may be that they had worked together before, called into question the skills of one or the other. Could be that they sat there for one and a half hours waiting to be given clearance to taxi for takeoff and just really rubbed each other the wrong way. No idea, but God's providential hand of protection was on each and every passenger that day. Rather than tweeting that this is the last time I'll fly with Alaska, who incidentally has the highest safety rating of all U.S. carriers and the only U.S. carrier to be in the top 10 for safety around the world, maybe these passengers should be praising the pilots 
for recognizing that there were conflicts and it could legitimately pose safety concerns. So the best thing to do was not to fly. This is an example of what we call God's common grace. In looking up some of the scriptures, I came across a gotquestions.org article, and as I do with most of these little commentaries, I've learned something new. So common grace has always been a biblical concept, most often typified by Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, saying in Matthew 5.45, he's speaking of God the Father here, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Regardless of your understanding of the doctrine of election, the reality is that not all are saved. There are those that are haters of God, in enmity with God, and yet God grants rain and sun, air, food, water, maybe friends or family, love, health, potentially wealth. See, God is a good God that provides for all of his creation. Now, what I learned is that in 1924, the Christian Reformed Church held a synod and formulated and adopted the three points of common grace. The first point is what I just spoke of. And some other backing scriptures are Psalm 145, 9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Or Luke 6.35, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. The second point is that God both restrains the unsaved from sinning in some cases, but also restrains evil for his plans and purposes, and also releases evil for his plans and purposes. But the bottom line is that the unregenerate person who doesn't do all the evil he's capable of is restrained only by God. Likewise, the only reason that man isn't bombarded with constant evil in this sin-cursed world is because God restrains it. And conversely, God allows and ordains evil for his purposes, which are sinless, as his ways are much, much higher than our ways. We can't even begin to think that we know the mind or the will of God, especially not from an ultimate standpoint. The third point is that God allows or ordains that the unsaved, the unregenerate person, can and will do much good from a human perspective in this world. He can be a loving father, she can be a loving mother, they can be loving spouses, they can donate their time and resources to charity, they can strive to make the world better, all without being born again. And that's only because of God's common grace that he bestows on the just and the unjust. If I were to guess, I'd say that most of the passengers on that airplane were not saved. Just statistically speaking, that's likely true. I'd also say that if these pilots did not turn the plane back to the gate, the odds are very good that they would have flown the flight, landed the flight, and the passengers would have been none the wiser. But what I do know for sure is that the conflict they had, the training they had received, the decision that was made, was all because of the common grace of God. These pilots should be commended for the actions they took. They put the safety of their passengers first, even though they knew it would cause them potentially disciplinary action, and would definitely cause their passengers added inconvenience. This action to me would make me more likely to choose Alaska Airlines for a flight, not less, and it should cause, although it won't, but it should cause every person on that flight to stop and offer up a word of thanks to God for the grace he showed to all on that flight. And maybe this will help us think about our day-to-day -day situations and try to look at the inconveniences of life a little differently. And thank God, even for the things that we don't perceive as helpful, as we don't know what he knows, and we don't know his plans. Well, here we go again. Look, some people may call me a pessimist, others may call me skeptical, 
Still others may say I'm a devil's advocate, and some mean people may say that I'm just a jerk. Well, I'd like to argue with all those people. I'd like to, but alas, here we are. Personally, I admit that I am good at playing devil's advocate. You give me some idea, ask me to critique it, I'm pretty good at pointing out flaws or potential issues. That said, I generally call myself an optimist, but a realist. I really do want things to work out well, but I know that reality can be a cruel mistress. And when it comes to the world of global warming, carbon neutral, renewable energy, electric vehicles, although I won't argue that a time may come in the future where all of this is viable, I cannot see that time being in the near future like is trying to be shoved onto us. You know, half of all the new cars sold in the U.S. being electric by 2030. Let me give you my concerns with this foolishly arbitrary goal. One, the range of electric vehicles is terrible, in general. Two, cost of electric vehicles is outrageous, in general. Three, battery technology is okay. Not good or great, just okay. Four, repairs, especially battery repair or replacement, is unbelievably expensive. Five, charging stations, relatively speaking, are few and far between. Six, superfast chargers are very scant. Seven, stories of non-functional charges are everywhere. 8. Charging times are generally terrible for the range you get. 9. Our electric grid is already taxed. 10. We're investing in sources of power that are fickle and massively inefficient. 11. We're shutting down sources of power that are reliable and able to realistically fuel the grid and increased capacity needs. And 12. Finally, and maybe my favorite, Regardless of the fact that Biden picked up his favorite crayon and scribbled what passes as his signature on a bill to make 50% of all new car sales be electric by 2030, how will that be enforced? What we're seeing right now is a fascination with EVs, but also a lot of problems, and most people want nothing to do with them. So what, if I go to GM at the end of 2030, which I wouldn't do, you know, because of quality and or reliability, and ask for a gas-powered car, they would tell me I can't have one, they're only allowed to sell electric because of the 50% order, because they've already sold all the gas cars they're allowed to for the year? Really? Well, I guess we'll see. Need I go on? Recently, I did a review about just being a good person and letting visitors to your house plug in to charge their car. You know, love thy neighbor. Come on, love them. That same author said that businesses and companies should have charging ports for their employees or patrons to plug in and charge while they work or shop or watch a movie or whatever at the cost of the business or company. And cities should have charging stations similar to parking meters all over the city streets for people to plug in and use. Should I go back through the part of my list about the grid being on the edge of melting into a pool of molten copper? But what that author was trying to do was deal with the fact that the charging time is terrible and the range is even worse, so just constantly charge. Everywhere you stop, constantly charge. That'll fix the problem. For this commentary, I have two very short articles, both found on cleantechnica.com, that highlight more possible ways to give the appearance that this electric vehicle thing can work on a large scale. First headline, University of Florida PhD proposes USAF-style V2V charging. So USAF is U.S. Air Force and V2V is vehicle-to-vehicle. Okay. From the University of Florida, a Ph.D. student in electrical and computer engineering, <laughs> show off, as well as a professor of electrical engineering and computer science and some other team members that 
apparently don't matter, have proposed a new idea to mask the obvious issues with current EVs in relation to charging. Make electric vehicles with the ability to charge other electric vehicles. Their proposal boils down to this. Make vehicles with two batteries, a large, slow-charging battery and a smaller, fast-charging battery. Have all electric vehicles be cloud-based, so a central data system can monitor the real-time charge levels of all cars. When a car requires a charge, the possible cars around them that could provide them extra juice can be contacted requesting they link up. A driver with extra electrical fuel can then decide to sell his electrons to the driver in need. The two cars would then tether together with a charging cable. They could continue to drive, but their speed would be locked together so the charging could take place without them becoming untethered. It doesn't say, but I'm assuming this charge would flow from the large battery of one car to the small battery of the other. The PhD student got the idea from watching an aerial refueling of a smaller fighter jet from a larger tanker and figured if aeroplanes can do that, why not electric cars on the highway, right? The team modeled this idea and found that they would reduce wait times at the charging station and reduce the cost of electric vehicles since they would remove the 800-volt systems and replace them with smaller 400-volt systems, which have less range, but charge somewhat faster. The professor added, quote, We also did an analysis assuming the mobile charging stations are recharged using renewable energy and saw a big reduction in carbon emissions. <laughs> okay. By now you know my views on these models that are created to analyze something. I mean, if I made the assumption in my model that electrons flowed like gasoline and batteries filled up like gas tanks... I could reduce wait times at charging stations also. And if I modeled that electric vehicles ran on hopes and dreams, I could dramatically cut the cost of everything. Their models are no better than the assumptions baked into the model. And I guarantee from what they're proposing, they made a lot of assumptions. And they may very likely have been baked while doing it. This article then links to article number two. Headline, Electric Silverado could get dual CCS ports, V2V charging. CCS stands for Combined Charging System, which is essentially the charging plug style used to charge these electric vehicles. So GM has recently filed a patent for a dual battery, dual charging port Silverado. Apparently the two stacked batteries could be run in series, so operate like an 800 volt system, or in parallel, like a 400 volt system. Additionally, the dual ports could allow the owner to use two charger cables at a charging station to charge up both batteries at once. And having two batteries could allow one to be used to power other accessories, say on a job site, or, wait for it, plug into other electric vehicles to charge them up. Now, there are limitations to this current design as of right now. They'd only be able to charge a vehicle with a 400-volt architecture, so the Chevy Bolt or the Cadillac Lyric. Now, Teslas also run on a 325 to 400-volt system, but we spit on Tesla, as Elon Musk hasn't kissed the ring and the hiney of the Democrat Party, so he's dead to both the government and government motors. This type of GM dual battery architecture would lend itself to a company that utilizes a vehicle fleet having an all GM electric fleet as one car could charge another. Boom. Just like that. Okay. 
from an engineering design, research and development concept generation standpoint, I can see the innovation and the uniqueness of it. From a realistic standpoint, this is mostly stupid. The problem I have with both of these comes down to the limitations of the system as a whole. It all comes down to how wide you draw your boundaries on the system you're looking at. Electric vehicles will each drain their battery at a rate specific to the type of vehicle and the use of that vehicle. Those batteries have a finite capacity before they're dead, as in need to be recharged. There are a few charger options. In general, you can choose slow, medium, or fast. There are a limited number of public charging stations and a limited number of chargers at those stations. Each battery will take a certain amount of time to charge based on the size of the battery, the starting level, the desired charge level, and the type of charger. These are constants, limitations you just can't get around. This is akin to having a gallon of water and pouring it into various cups and tumblers and just pouring it back and forth and forth and back while at the same time people are taking drinks of the water. Eventually you're going to need to add more water to the system. You can't just move things around and expect some sort of vast improvement. You're robbing Peter to pay Paul. So, working backward in our articles, if the Silverado with dual ports charges both batteries at one time, that's one less charger available for someone else to use. The total time to charge the total number of vehicles is the same no matter what. You using two ports is just you being a jerk. And yes, it would be a jerky move to use two gas pumps at once to fill your dual tanks, but at least those are full in, what, five to ten minutes versus 30 minutes, an hour, two hours? I mean, how long, right? In either case, if you use your car to charge someone else's car, even if you don't lose money in the transaction, you still have to use your time somewhere charging your car all the way back up. Making the assumption that you could just do this while you're in dreamy night-night land at home or at one of the totally free-to-use new charging ports that every business is supposed to install is a big assumption. And are you now going to have dual ports at your house, or three or four chargers, if you have multiple vehicles? As for a cloud-based system of electric cars and electric car network, uh, how about no? I realize that the concept of everyone on a single master controlling computer is the way of the future, but as for now, no, get out of my car. And I can't even imagine the nightmare scenarios that could happen with two cars tooling down the freeway, tethered extremely closely together by a high-voltage electrical cable, relying on a computer, well, two computers, to work together to deal with all possible events. This concept would never work in the world today, not with human-controlled vehicles on the road, which, don't worry, the plan is to get rid of this entire individually-controlled human vehicle system in the near future anyway. There are too many scenarios that I'm sorry the computers in these cars aren't going to be able to handle correctly. Just because it's a computer doesn't make it infallible. They're only as good as the programming put into them and the reliability of the hardware used in the computer. And trust me, I know a little about programming, and I know plenty about computers and reliability, and wow, I'm not putting my life in the hands of a programmer that might have made a mistake somewhere in the code, or a computer that may just randomly go to a blue screen of death. I realize that the military does aerial refueling, but come on, this is nothing like that. I mean, nothing. In no way is it the same. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy for the engineers that are toying with these ideas. Good for them. But were I the engineering manager or the professor and someone handed in these concepts, 
Well, I mean, I'd try to be nice, but I'd tear them to shreds. These are silly options that gain us nothing overall. But as is always true for the ilk of those that would think this is a great idea, which are the same people that believe we must go all electric, they don't think about well into the future. They don't have the ability to think any farther out than right now. If person A can charge their car from person B's car, then chargers wouldn't be as congested right now. But eventually, person B must use a charger to charge back what person A used from them. But let's not look at that bit. Let's stop at how convenient it was for person A. And what really annoys me is that this is all done because agenda-driven, fear-mongering, climate alarmists have used faulty data and or manipulated the data to give us the false appearance that the planet will soon die a screeching heat death if we don't do this and do it now, which, as I've stated multiple times before, is the epitome of a humanist, atheistic worldview, a view that either there is no God or that he's too weak and stupid to be able to deal with the almighty, all-powerful human being. <laughs> you know, his creation. I'm not going to draw out a deep theological truth here. I've covered this worldview in past episodes. You can go find it in various forms. But to sum it up, without a belief in a sovereign God, this is where you end up where humans only have godlike powers to create and destroy and doom and save humanity. But beyond that, here's an angle you may not have picked up on with all of this. When I look at both this article and the last review of the handful of articles about how the way to deal with poor EV range is for everyone everywhere to just provide everyone all the time with places to plug in, what I see here is a backdoor attempt at socialism. Now, I know that in some of the cases it was, you can sell your charge or make it like a parking meter. But how long will that last before the cries for free electrons happens? This will just become a sort of forced charity. And I guarantee that the godless left, who are the people pushing this for the most part, will rip one of their favorite biblical concepts out of context yet again. Just love your neighbor. Look, everyone needs electricity. So if we all just do our part, everyone can benefit, right? And in reality, I believe that the ultimate goal is for this to fail anyway. They can't be that stupid to not realize the grid will pop like an overloaded fuse trying to do what they're asking, and when it fails, they can then keep humanity confined to small sectors. So transportation can be conducted via a mass transit system, and we'll live in a location where we're born, live, work the job given to us, and die. People are much more controllable when you remove freedom, which... Freedom, again, is a biblical theme, so we don't, we don't need that. Personally, I hold out hope that they'll fail. I don't have a problem with electric cars where they make sense for the people they make sense for. I do have a problem with them being forced onto us with socialist-forced charity of our electrons with the loss of freedoms that will inevitably come from this ridiculousness. And most importantly, I have a problem with the overall reason why this is being done and as always, the answer is simple. Turn to God. Funny how it always seems to come back to that. Turn back to the true truth of the Bible, the truth of an almighty sovereign God, and rely on his promises and his directives to take care of the earth, yes, but fill it up and use it. Over and over, we see the earth has been designed to heal and repair itself and adapt to human progress. And over and over, we think the earth can't repair or heal itself or adapt to human progress. As for me, I'll take the freedom and joy in knowing that the earth works because God designed it, rather than the panic and chaos in believing man is the ultimate being and the earth is on the knife edge of destruction at all times. 
So let me ask you a few questions, you know, to see where you fit. Do you believe we landed on the moon or that it was done on a Hollywood soundstage? Do you believe in evolution or do you believe in intelligent design? And let me qualify throughout this commentary, anywhere I state intelligent design, I mean God. And I'll take of any religion for right now, but an all-powerful eternal deity, not aliens. Do you believe in climate change? Do you believe vaccines are safe and effective? Found on ArsTechnica.com, headline, Astrophysicist Paul Souter Explains the World's Seeming Lack of Truth in Science. These are the opening points that Mr. Souter makes to the 17-minute video inside of this article. Now let me interject. The way he stated these so-called scientific beliefs is in itself disingenuous. Landing on the moon, that's pretty straightforward. But evolution. Although I believe in a God of the Bible, ordained creation about 6,000 years ago, I also believe that things evolve. But by that I mean they change within their kind. They don't change into other kinds. Other born-again Christians believe that God started the process and evolution was the force that God used to create what we see today. I think that's silly and unscientific and illogical and can severely damage your views of a sovereign God, but what's for sure is that the term evolution is a very nuanced term that needs to be contextualized. As for climate change, I think only absolute stubborn fools don't believe that the climate is changing, has changed, and will change in the future. The question he's asking is actually regarding man-caused climate change. Is man the cause of the shift in our climate? As for vaccines, one of the hot-button issues of our time, again, context and definition matters. There are some that are anti-vaccine for everything. They have a case to be made. There are people like me that define vaccine the way they used to be defined as a weakened or dead strain of a virus created and tested over many years and many people with a long-term track record of being safe, injected so that our body can find it, figure it out, and throw the code into long-term memory for later use. The question he's asking is, are you a science denier that doesn't believe in the COVID vaccine? We'll talk about that more in a few moments, but bottom line, despite the recent changes to the definition of vaccine that the CDC and Webster's Dictionary Online made, is this really a vaccine like anything we've ever known? The creator of the mRNA technology says it's not. Does this have a long-term track record working through many scaled-up trials as all previous vaccines? No, it doesn't. It was fast-tracked, with certain defined levels of testing occurring concurrently, and massive extrapolation of data and the use of future-casting algorithms to predict long-term safety. So by definition, can you believe vaccines are safe but also believe the COVID injection is not? Yes. So by his very questions, he's not speaking scientifically. He's speaking out of his bias manipulating you and I into his playpen, where either you is or you ain't on the side of science. Okay, back to our show already in progress. We'll get to the video in a moment, but let's take a look at the short article very quickly here. It opens with, quote, The public has a very strange relationship with science. On the one hand, scientists have been among the most trusted figures in U.S. society, and the same holds true in many other countries. On the other hand, there's widespread mistrust in many of the conclusions scientists have reached. The article cites public mistrust in areas of evolution and climate change being recently joined by a, quote, range of conspiracy theories about the COVID pandemic. And as one would expect, they even throw the flat earth thing in there, because of course they do. The article asks the question, who exactly is to blame for the gap between the percent of the population that trust scientists 
and the percent that trust what scientists are telling us. So let's see what this video reveals, shall we? Mr. Souter, after the brief intro bump, says that, quote, all beliefs in science are provisional. Basically, as they study the science, their beliefs can change. That's what science is. He says they're not locked into one way of perceiving the world. Okay, good. Now let's keep this in mind, shall we? He says that science plays a critical role in society. I absolutely agree with that. He goes on to say that he's an astrophysicist, and then somewhat dismissively says that he studies stars blowing up, evolution of the universe, that sort of thing. And when he makes a video, he'll undoubtedly get comments that something he said isn't true or doesn't exist, and that's fine. That kind of disagreement is inconsequential. This is a kind of emotional manipulation, be aware. It's a humble brag while calling to his authority, being a very smart person, but he's your friend. He's on your side. He's not an uncaring, dogmatic person that is necessarily locked into his belief system, like others you may think of. But then he says that when scientists say the Earth is warming, and it's because of greenhouse gases, and someone disagrees, that's important. That has consequences. He gives another, I'm assuming, purely hypothetical scenario of if an epidemiologist were to say there's, oh, I don't know, a deadly virus that's killing people, and he has a solution, as the video shows a needle, but people say, I don't believe you. Well, that's important, too. That also has consequences. And this is the problem. This kind of conflict between the science and the trust of the science by the population, that's the problem. So what do some of the scientists on this video say about why people don't trust the science? Well, one scientist thinks that sometimes scientists aren't willing to speak from their convictions. I guess I'd have to ask, who? Who's not doing this? Another one says that although people generally have a trust for science, when it comes to solving real-world problems, people may look to someone who seems to have more practical problem-solving skills. Really? I mean, they're scientists. Don't we all agree that that kind of thing is, I don't know, in their wheelhouse? Another scientist said that most of the distrust comes from self-obsession. Quote, like, how does this affect me and my health? Am I going to live forever? How do I live longer? How do I get thinner? <laughs> we'll come back to her in a moment. Another scientist said that she actually, get this, grew up with people that didn't believe in science. Quickly adding, she's from a small rural town in Pennsylvania. And one of her friends in high school actually told the teacher, I don't believe in science. I don't believe in this. <laughs> we'll come back to this scientist also. And yet another one believes it's because people just don't understand the scientific method. People just think these scientists are just changing their minds. Ugh, if only we could all be smart enough to understand this data and analysis and evaluation thing. Derp, derp, derp. At one point, the question was asked, how do people generate their opinions and beliefs? The answer by one was that we all have world experience, people around us, people that have similar experiences, and that's where our beliefs are rooted, in those shared experiences. <laughs> LOL, what? The follow-up question was, what happens when we have a belief, but it conflicts with the evidence? Well, that's when people with these beliefs tend to find the fringe experts as images of articles about dangerous COVID fringe science and confirmation bias flash on the screen. Another scientist said that we tend to accept evidence that conforms to our beliefs. 
which is the literal definition of confirmation bias. But science is the process of figuring out what the good evidence is while discounting our personal beliefs. Which is correct. Those words he said are the correct words. Of course, they have to hit the big one, at least these days. What are the big points of misinformation about COVID? One of our scientists says that some people believe it's just a flu or that it's an engineered bioweapon. Some people believe you don't need a vaccine or that you can just use, quote, treatments that aren't proven to be effective or known to be potentially harmful. Then the implication was made that although people generally want to maintain their health and the health of those around them, the decisions being made by some today aren't reflecting that. Hmm. He then asked why some people have weird beliefs like the earth is flat or we never landed on the moon. Why do they believe that? The answer was from this particular scientist's view is that it starts with people having a distrust in the medical establishment. Then it snowballs from there where people think they can just research things on their own and become an expert. What a bunch of stupid, dumb, dumb morons thinking they can learn without help. Mr. Souter wraps up this video with telling us one of the most important things we, well, not all of we, but we scientists can do with science moving into the future, and that thing is communicate. Communicate in a way the public can understand and, and appreciate and enjoy with empathy and compassion. Oh, and storytelling, also with listening. Okay. So as a scientist, and yes, I have a bachelor's of science in mechanical engineering. I am literally a scientist. So as a scientist, this video was garbage in general and also scientifically. First, most of the scientists made some claim that science changes, that they look at the evidence only and arrive at the conclusions with full knowledge that the conclusion may change based on new evidence. Okay, yes, that is what science is. You develop a hypothesis, evaluate all evidence with the goal of proving your hypothesis wrong, then you modify your hypothesis and keep repeating ad infinitum. Now, the reality is that you don't actually do this forever. There is a point where you've explored all practical, realistic possibilities, and you can come to a mostly final conclusion. Take the theory of gravity or the speed of light or sound, for instance. Although these things aren't as constant as they once were thought to be, they're understood to a very high degree, how they work, how they can be affected, etc., to the point that we can design machines, fly rockets, and beam information around the world with great precision. The problem with the scientists on this video, and from what I've seen, I'd say the vast majority of scientists in general, what they don't seem to realize because of their own beliefs, their own biases, and their own tendency towards confirmation bias, is that they've put boundaries on what is settled science and what is open for investigation and debate, as well as boundaries on what evidence can be utilized in evaluating their hypothesis. Now, don't get me wrong. In order to evaluate a hypothesis, you need to set your boundary conditions, but that's vastly different than making the claim that something like man-caused climate change is settled. It's just a fact. Second, the implication that those from small towns or with certain beliefs uh, just don't understand science is, from a viewpoint of a born-again Christian that grew up in a town of about 3,000 people, angering and unbelievably unscientific. These scientists are making an untested, unverified assumption about certain groups of people and their scientific abilities based on their demographics. 
The young lady from a small rural town in Pennsylvania who said she had a friend that in high school stated to her teacher that she didn't believe in science is a liar. And yes, I'm fine with making that claim because I'm right. Her friend did not stand up and say, I don't believe in science. Her friend may have stood up and said, I don't believe in evolution. That would be my probably very accurate guess as to what the subject was. And based on this so-called scientist's obvious dismissal of a view other than the accepted scientific narrative, the narrative she believes is settled is in itself unscientific. Third, the female professor scientist that had mannerisms that clearly said, hey, everybody look at me, stating that distrust comes from self-obsession, I guarantee was telling on herself. In fact, she said that she is also human and also does research on how to be thinner or to stay thin. Now, I do agree that our beliefs can be tainted by self-obsession, but that cuts both ways. This isn't only a factor in the disbelief of so-called science, but also the belief in science. Fourth, the motive for this video was thinly veiled at best. This was a, a go get your vaccine video, as those that distrust science are anti-vaxxers and really just flat earthers and climate deniers, and you don't want to be those things, do you? At one point, one of the interviewees said that distrust in science leads to the idea that a vaccine isn't safe and effective. So the obvious implication is that science has declared the COVID vax to be safe and effective, as we were and have been told more times than anyone could hope to count. Now, you may believe that, but at the very least, there is a lot of data out there that suggests that the opposite is true. And I think we'd all have to agree that the definition we were given regarding effective has made a large change over the last one and a half years. And as of the last few months, more and more countries and health agencies are changing their definition of safe as well as the data comes out. And since when have we been able to settle science like that this vaccine is safe and effective when very little actual research and data collection, very little testing and no long term testing has been done? This isn't science. This is politics, but they call it science because it feels like science. And since scientists are, or at least were, very trusted, if they can throw a scientific stamp of approval on it, more people are apt to buy what they're selling. Combine that with the certain little troll scientists having a desire for godlike status, a lust for power, notoriety, and science can find itself severely compromised at the detriment of the population at large. Additionally, these scientists have no idea where people get their beliefs. These scientists have a low view of the general plebes in the world, including the belief that unless we're granted the license by an accepted, accredited institution, we are incapable of researching, learning, and evaluating, you know, using the scientific method to determine what appears to be right and wrong. These scientists are blind to the fact that they're being very selective about what they're actually doing science on and what they've declared as an indisputable scientific fact. These scientists have completely discounted reams of data, religious beliefs, and views opposing the views they've deemed to be the correct views. That's not scientific. The reality, at least as I see it, and unlike these scientists, I actually am willing to be wrong, is that the reason we have distrust for certain areas of science, or more accurately, certain scientific conclusions, is because there are many, many of us that are evaluating science using more than just the accepted interpretation of the carefully selected data set. Plainly stated, many of us have a deeply held religious belief that informs our view of the world that interprets the same evidence and data through a different lens. 
In fact, there are people on both sides that do this, that hold unwavering views, refusing to look at the other side. But from my experience, there are many more people with religious beliefs willing to evaluate data from both a religious and humanist viewpoint than apply the scientific method to determine what hypotheses best fits the data. In general, non-religious scientists discount religious views outright as being fables and stories not worth their time. That's massively unscientific. Science itself was actually developed primarily by very religious Christian individuals. Their desire in general was to discover how the creation by God worked. They were trying to learn all the wonders of what God had made and given to man. This morphed into a humanist type of philosophy and eventually a man-focused anti-God science. And of course, today we have religion and we have science and never the twain shall meet. This is why we have evolution and creationism. The reality is we actually have evolutionism and creationism, belief in one or the other, not one being a scientific fact and the other a faith-based belief. In fact, as I've said many times before, belief in something like evolution requires more faith than belief in a God who created everything. The Bible is not a science textbook, but where it speaks on scientific facts like God created, it's correct every time and never changes. The accepted narratives of the science, conversely, change constantly. It almost makes you think about the uh, one man that built his house upon the sand and that, that other guy that built his house upon the rock. The theory of evolutionism has been modified, changed, updated, and rearranged many, many times. The various component parts of the theory conflict with each other. The only thing settled about the evolution theory is that it's the only theory that's allowed. The theory of man-caused climate change is nowhere near settled. Data suggests that there hasn't been any warming for many years. Science informs us of the sun and the oceans as being the largest factor in the temperature of the planet. And nobody seems to know what the correct temperature of the planet should be only that they don't want it to change from what it is right now. That's not science. That's not even compatible with evolution. That's just pure agenda. The idea that the COVID virus is an engineered bioweapon. Well, there are definitely markers that this was engineered, not natural, as was first pushed to the population. Documentation suggests that this was being engineered for specific purposes. The point is, a true scientist could not, at this point in time, say beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was a naturally occurring virus, as there is too much data out there that suggests the opposite. And we've already covered the purported safety and efficacy of the vaccine. Regarding a flat earth or a fake moon landing, it doesn't matter what you do. There will always be a small percent of people that believe or don't believe something. The astrophysicist says that the key moving into the future is to better communicate using empathy and compassion and storytelling and listening. Well, to me, that's manipulative. Science is not about emotional connection. It's about making a logical case based on a very thorough evaluation of all possible data. Humanity isn't as stupid as these scientists believe we are. Most people can tell when they've been handed a bill of goods. If it doesn't sound right, we can generally tell, and especially these days, the political agenda has been laid on so thick that people aren't sure what to trust because it all sounds like lies and spin. We've moved from global cooling and the next ice age in the 1970s to global warming in the 80s and 90s to climate change to weather weirding. We've said that COVID was natural, was man-made, was natural again, was engineered. We've said that masks do nothing, then they do, but they don't unless everyone wears one, but only if you wear two of them, but only if one of them is an N95. We're told that the Big Bang created everything, but maybe it didn't, and maybe aliens are not, but we definitely found the missing link, and the missing link, and another missing link, 
and the timeline and the age of things is constantly shifting and changing. We're told that the COVID injection is a vaccine. Then definitions online are changed so they can pass the red face test on the definition. We were told if you got it, you couldn't get COVID. But it was two shots. Except for Johnson & Johnson, that was one shot. But that one isn't safe. But it's safe again. And oh, you need a booster and another one. And you'll need another one. And you can still get COVID, but your symptoms will be less. Just take a pill. And then you'll need a second course of that pill as you rebound. And yes, people are dying with the vaccine. But those were the seriously compromised anyway. And as we all know, younger people die all the time for no identifiable reason. It's called SADS, Sudden Adult Death Syndrome. We all know that. It happens all the time. Conversely, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And also, Men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Look into all the old Levitical Mosaic laws regarding hygiene and waste disposal. Look how scientifically, medically accurate these are. These laws, followed by faithful Jews even to fairly recent times, has helped them stave off diseases and plagues that the rest of the world was ravaged with. For the sake of time, you need to go to Job 38. Just start reading. You can start earlier than that, but... Who exactly controls how things happen in this universe? Science says that out of chaos came order by random chaotic chance, which makes no scientific sense. Christians believe that out of chaos came order by God, setting the rules, the foundations, the processes that govern the working of the world, all held together by Jesus himself. So why don't people trust the conclusions that scientists arrive at? Because we do understand data, and the conclusions aren't fitting the data. In fact, we generally understand science and know that ignoring entire sets of data, entire theories, is not doing science. We know that science, by definition, is a process of hypothesizing, researching, adjusting the hypothesis, and so on. But when we're presented with absolute, undeniable, indisputable scientific fact that in short order is replaced and completely contradicted by absolute, undeniable, indisputable scientific fact, we start to question what it is that so-called scientists are actually doing. And from a spiritual worldview, regardless of if an individual is a Christian or not, we have an ingrained knowledge of the truth. Some, many, suppress this, but many others can tell when something doesn't seem to fit with reality. I love science. The ability to collect data, create a hypothesis, analyze the data, adjust my hypothesis, test, fail, regroup, test again, that's why I have the career I do, and I've been very blessed to be good at it. Don't disregard science. But at the same time, don't be afraid to be called a science denier by the unbelieving world. Wear it as a badge of honor, but only if you've done the work. Don't just be a contrarian saying all science is bad. Don't be a conspiracy theorist believing every crazy thing you're told. 
remember that many aspects of science and many scientists are looking at the world from a humanist worldview, either with a casual dismissal of a god or an antipathy, a hatred for the idea of god. And despite what they say, their science is drastically affected. Their conclusions are heavily biased by their worldview. You can love science and love God. Those two things aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, the only reason we can do science is because God created a world with order and laws and governing principles that allow us to do science. And science, when done using all possible theories and data, is science that we and the world can trust. So love God, study his word, enjoy science, Study, test, and analyze everything, and do it all for the glory of God. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.